I uh, want to invite our children to Children's Church. The teacher will meet you in the back. Um, you may have noticed that the guy who preached last week looked a little different than me, a little more handsome. Um, Dan was filling in for me. I was, in case you didn't hear, I was in Wisconsin. I, I performed a wedding uh, for some friends from Illinois. And uh, Wisconsin at the end of December, and I survived. I did not freeze to death. But it was, you know, thankfully, I think the Lord prepared the way for me because it was a really mild winter. There was hardly any snow. It rained a bunch of times. Um, it was pretty nice. Um, and you'll notice that um, my row is particularly empty. That's because Lisa stayed around for another week to visit some friends. So uh, she'll be back. Everybody's, nobody's asked about me. Everybody's saying, where's Lisa? Like, I know how this works. I understand how this works. I, I get it. Um, I love her, too. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to go. Thank you, Dan, for filling in. And um, so we're back in Acts. Welcome to 2019. Uh, we're back to the book of Acts. Uh, so before we begin, let me open us in prayer. Oh, Lord, I, I thank you that uh, we've had a time to look at the Psalms and to reflect on who Jesus is, uh, especially given some of the preaching that we've heard in, in Acts. It, it really did fit in well, and, and I thank you for your mercy to us that way. Uh, Lord, I, I Pray now as we return to the book of Acts that you would continue your purpose in us, that you continue to speak and, and, uh, and teach us. And Lord, we're mindful of those who aren't with us this morning. Pray for Joanne uh, for her uh, diagnosis of an ulcer. And uh, Lord, I pray for her recovery. Lord, that they would find the right medication to, uh, to make the ulcers stop and, and uh, a good treatment to, to take care of them. And Lord, we long for her return, for her, um, her uh, restoration and health and, and uh, her joining us again in worship. And Father, we want to pray for Bob Kempel, who's in um, urgent care even now. And Lord, we're not sure what, what's wrong, but would you be with Bob in this time and uh, remind him of your love and your concern for him? Lord, I pray for the attendants who will be taking care of him, that you would give them wisdom, that you would guide them skillfully to um, care for Bob in the best possible way. And Lord, I, I know Bob, and, and um, I know he's, he's calling on you even now. So Lord, we join him in that in that call, and we ask for your mercy to him. Lord, show him uh, your care in sustaining him through whatever he's facing. And we pray for his restoration, and, and that he'll be back with us soon as well. So, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to, to be with us, to in, interpret it, to understand it, to apply it. Lord, we ask your blessing on the preaching, on the reading, on the hearing of your word this morning. Be with us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are in the middle of the book of Acts, the center of the book. And really, it, chapter 15 is, is the center. It's the, the, the central part of the book of Acts, not just literarily like where it's placed, but the, the material that's here is super important. This, this first part of Acts chapter 15 really is the crux of the issue. And you can tell that this is a, a, a turning point in the book because Acts 15 happens. We have this council. We have this meeting. We will not see Jerusalem again until way later in the book. Paul will return briefly, and we won't see Peter again. He'll be done. We've moved from this one phase to the next phase, and the pivot point is Acts chapter 15. The crucial question that Acts chapter 15 asks us is, what is required? What is required to be saved? And it's a, it's a very timely question. It's a question that applied in the first century. It's a question that has repeated throughout church history. It's a question that's vital today. Is what must I do to be saved? So the question that, that, that is brought up here is what's required? And what we're going to see as we go through this is we're going to understand the conflict. Then we'll see the council as the council comes together to discuss it. And then we'll read their letter. 
So we get to kind of peek over their shoulder. And that's what we're gonna, how it's going to go this morning. You notice it was a long reading, 35 verses. It's a pretty long chunk. Um, thank you, Ron. You did a great job. Didn't, didn't stumble over anything. It was awesome. Uh, but when I'm preaching through it, and so we're not here till 2, I'm going to try to summarize some stuff uh, because there's a little bit of repetition, and, and I think we can summarize and still get to the point. So if I don't hit your question, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know sometimes we have these questions. We're going, oh, I can't wait to hear what he says, and then I don't say it. So um, we'll, we'll try to do our best with what we've got. So let's start off with the conflict. What's the issue? So men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, um, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So where did they come down to? Well, where the story ended in chapter 14 was Paul and Barnabas had gone out on their, their missionary trek. They'd gone through all of uh, this chunk of um, what we would modern day, what we call today Turkey. At that time, it was called Asia. And now they've returned back to Antioch in Pisidia, or Antioch in Syria. And so they've returned, and they're, they're telling their stories, these great missionary tales of what happened to them. And some guys come up from Judea. They travel from Judea. They come to Antioch, and they say, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. So do you see what I mean by what, must, what is required? Is it required to be circumcised? Well, these men thought it was. So remember what the church in Antioch looked like. This has been a couple chapters. It was back in 11 we heard about it. So let me just read a little bit of chapter 11 to remind us what the constitution of the church in Antioch was. Now there were those who scattered of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, on whom... uh, on coming, on who, I'm sorry, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So listen to those places again. The, in chapter, um, nine, or chapter 8, Stephen is persecuted and killed. That just inflamed things, and Saul of Tarsus really went nuts in the church, just persecuting everybody. That scattered all the believers. They took off, and they went all over the place. They even went up to Antioch, which is up, like I said, in Syria. And as they're going, they're still preaching to the Jews. The the picture of what the church would look like was still materializing. Jesus was a Jew. He He was the Jewish Messiah. He was coming to the Jews. Surely we've got to preach to the Jews, and so that's who they focused on. But there were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is that island south of Turkey. Cyrene is modern-day Tripoli. So this international church, people from northern Africa, from Cyprus, which is there by Turkey, come to Syria, and they begin to, to preach to the Hellenists. Now, when I talked about this previously, we'd heard the word Hellenist before, and it referred to Greek-speaking Jews. And in this case, it probably didn't refer to Greek-speaking Jews. We've heard that they've been preaching to the Jews. It probably means the Greeks. So these people from these other outlying lands come, and they start preaching to Gentiles, and numbers of them turn and join. So this church in Antioch, Antioch was a really big town, a really big city. Antioch's church is way diverse, people from different continents, all mixed together. And so this is the church that, is going to be used to send Paul and Barnabas out on the missionary journeys to go and reach the rest of the world. You remember what Jesus said at the beginning? He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's what we've seen as we've gone through Acts so far is Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem. 
And then when the persecution arose, they were scattered and they went into Samaria and into the rest of Judea. And then with Paul and Barnabas, they go out to the ends of the world. They're going out to the rest of the known world. It's just beginning at this point in the book, but that's what that phase is. So as they're going, the issue of who can be saved comes up. Do you have to convert to Judaism in order to put your trust in Jesus and to be saved by him? That's the question. Now, you know, 21st century, we're looking at it and go, well, of course not. But it wasn't so clearly defined at this point. It was still a, a big question. It was still a big issue. So what they say is they come and they say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a crucial point. Is What they're saying is you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Who received circumcision? Who, who did God command to be circumcised to begin with? It was our father Abraham. It wasn't Moses. So why didn't they come and say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of father Abraham, you can't be saved? Because they're not talking simply about circumcision here. They're talking about Moses. And when they talk about Moses, that means the law. What they're expecting these Gentiles to do is, you've got to come to us, you've got to be circumcised. And once you have received the mark of circumcision, you are now under the, Abraham, or the, uh, the uh, Mosaic Covenant, and you have to do things like the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws and, and the tithing and the this and the that, and you can't associate with Gentiles anymore and all of that stuff. They're not just saying circumcision. Circumcision in the New Testament is a key word for the law of Moses. That's what's going on is they're saying you have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Now, the, the temptation is to dismiss that really quickly or to think, well, these are just killjoys. These are just nasty, mean people who want to go subject everybody. But let's take a moment and think about this for a second. Did they have scriptural warrant for what they're saying? Did they appeal to the Bible to say, look, if you're going to be saved, you've got to become a Jew. That's, that's what's going on. Um, we don't know what their argument is, and so I'm kind of theorizing here. But I think they might be rational or reasoning this way. If Jesus is the Messiah, which they believe he is, there's no reason to doubt the, the salvation of these Judy. They're called Judaizers because they think you have to become a Jew. So they're trying to force Jew or push Jewish law on other people. That's why the word Judaizer comes from. So these Judaizers saying, look, there, there's, there's precedent for this in the scripture. We know that the Gentiles will come in, but they're going to come into Israel. So, for example, Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 20, says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts. People shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to no other, saying, Let us go once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Doesn't that sound like these Gentiles are going to latch on to the Jews and say, we want to go with you. And the Jews are saying, well, this is the only way you worship. This is how you worship. You have to be circumcised or you can't come into the temple. You have to be converted. You have to do all of these things or you'll be ceremonially unclean. You can't come into the temple. So doesn't that sound like what, that's what's being said here? These nations are going to come in. They're going to grab a hold of a Jew's robe and say, we want to follow you. So you could argue, well, then they must have to become Jews if they're going to worship like Jews do. 
Zechariah later also says, and this is in chapter 14, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of booths. So here's his prophetic utterance saying that the nations will keep the feasts of booths. That means they're coming under the law. They're being part of the law. Surely, these Gentiles who are trusting in Jesus must be circumcised and brought into the law. That's the only thing that makes sense. And then there's Isaiah chapter 19. It talks about um, a highway being built from Egypt, which is south of Israel, to Assyria, which is north of Israel. And they come together and they worship the Lord and they use the word Yahweh, his covenant name. And then it says at the end of that, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, does, does that sound like they're going to be the, the, the same old pagans that they were before? Or does it sound like Yahweh has established, this is how you worship? So if Egypt and Assyria want to come and join in worship, they must do this. That must be how it works. Because the assumption here is that the Mosaic law is eternal. This covenant that God made with Moses must be eternal. It can't, be, have done, can't have been done away with because of what it says in Exodus 31. In Exodus 31, it's the giving of the law. Now, when God makes covenants, often he will assign something called a sign or a seal of that covenant. So, for example, um, with Noah, God flooded the world, and then he said, I promise I'm not going to do that ever again. And the promise that I make is the rainbow in the sky. Every time I see the rainbow in the sky, that will remind me I'm not going to flood you again. That is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you and the whole, me and the whole world is what he says. So the sign of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. Abraham is told, you're going to receive circumcision, and that will be the sign of your covenant. If you don't receive circumcision, you're excluded. Moses is told, look, in Exodus 31, Moses is told, the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and Israel, my people, is they will keep the Sabbath forever. This is how he says it. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. So that's the sign of the covenant is, is this, this Sabbath. And God says, this is eternal. It goes on forever. So you don't look at me and say, well, the Mosaic covenant is over. That can't be. Therefore, if the nations are going to come in, if they're going to come and worship Yahweh, they have to be circumcised. They have to come under the law. They have to do these things. It's a, it's a reasonable argument, I think. It could be argued that way. Um, but, that, that's, that's a great word sometimes to hear is but. Um, in this case, it's and. Um, what happens is Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and debate. Paul and Barnabas hear their arguments. They hear what they're saying. and They say, yeah, but it doesn't work that way. And so they argue against it. We'll hear in a little bit how they are, might have argued against it. Actually, we can understand how they argue against it. Read the rest of the New Testament. That will answer your question of what was their argument against it. That's how I kind of picked up what they might be arguing from. So this church in Antioch, this powerhouse church in Antioch that has sent out global missionaries that has reached people from diverse groups is in turmoil. You've got people from Judea. That has a badge of authority. These are the folks who've been in the faith longer than we have. These are the Jews. These are the people from whom Jesus came. They came up and they said, you have to be circumcised. Well, maybe there's something to it. These people with these kind of authority, maybe there's something we should listen to. 
Paul and Barnabas, who are fantastic teachers, gifted prophets, they've gone on this wonderful missionary journey. They're saying no. And so the church is really in turmoil. What do we do? Because there's no, I love the way he says it, no small dissension. So that means a really big dissension. This is an important issue. Why are they fighting so much? Why is it such a big deal? Because what's at, what's at stake here is how are we saved? How are we saved? The, the, the answer that the New Testament gives is we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, that our works do not add to our salvation. What the Judaizers are saying is, that's nice, we're saved by faith, yeah, sure, but you have to come and do these laws first, and then you can be saved. It, it's a crucial question. It's not a minor thing. Sometimes in the church, there are issues that we can debate. Um, I like the, using the term open-hand and closed-hand theology. So, for example, um, when will Jesus return? What, what is the, the circumstances of Jesus' return? It's a wide open question. There's, there's numerous arguments that are really good on all four sides of that argument. So in our church, we hold that open. The, the particulars of Jesus' return, we'll say, we'll just leave that open. The closed hand part of that, the part that you have to say is happening, is Jesus is returning, that there is a resurrection from the dead, and that Jesus will judge everyone. So that's the closed hand part. The open hand part is the particulars. We can, we can disagree on that and nobody's going to hell. But the other stuff is closed, that's important. What's going on here is there is an open hand question, is, is it okay if you wanna to continue to practice Jewish customs and tradition versus a closed hand, how am I saved? If you get how am I saved wrong, what's the repercussions? You are not saved. It's that crucial. That's why it takes up a big chunk of the middle of the book of Acts, and that's why it's something that has rung throughout church history and even to today. So that's what's going on. That's why things are in such an uproar. And so what they decide is they're going to go to Jerusalem to get this question settled because these folks are from Judea. They'll recognize the authority and the power there. But they go to the apostles and the elders with this question. Now, the apostles, remember... We've been dealing with the question, what is an apostle? And we heard recently that Paul and Barnabas were apostles. And I said, the word apostle is a little complex because it can mean what we would think of just a missionary. But when they talk about the apostles here, I think they're talking about the 12. Because at this point in church history, they didn't have a New Testament. They couldn't simply flip to the book of Galatians or flip to the book of Hebrews and get the answer. So the, the source of authority, the source of right teaching was the 12. These were men who walked with Jesus, who heard him teach. They were the source of authority, and so we'll go and we'll appeal to the 12 and ask them. But it also says the elders, the elders in Jerusalem. Now, we saw elders last time we were in Acts because after Paul had gone through and, and preached the gospel throughout Turkey, as he's going back to come home, he goes back, he revisits all those churches to strengthen them, and he appoints elders. So this concept of elder is there. I think what's going on here is they're looking to the church in Jerusalem and the leaders in that church, the elders in that church. And so they're, they're wanting to appeal to the apostles first because they're the authority source, but also to the elders in the church in Jerusalem because they're seen as highly respected leaders. And these men from Judea came from them, so they need to be involved in the debate. So that's the resolution. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to talk to the apostles and elders, and we'll see what happens. So Paul and Barnabas go. 
So that's, that's the problem. That's the conflict that's risen. Now the, con- the, uh, the council, the church gathers. This is often referred to as the, uh, the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, the church throughout the first handful of centuries, whenever an issue arose, they gather- gathered all the leaders together and had a council, and it's kind of rooted in this. So this is kind of the first time this happens. So they gather together, and they, dis- they want to gather to discuss the matter. Verse 7 says, And after there had been much debate... So you can just picture what's going on. All that turmoil that was going on in Antioch has just been replicated in, in uh, Jerusalem. They're still continuing the argument. But the scripture says that they're going to come in, they're going to participate in the Feast of Booths. Doesn't that imply that they have to become Jews, that they have to come under Mosaic law? And Paul and Barnabas would say, yeah, but it also says this. So here's a problem that, that we Protestants don't like to admit. We, we believe in what's called sola scriptura, scripture alone. There is no external tradition or anything that's going to decide matters of faith and practice. It's only in our Bible. But what happens when we don't agree on the interpretation of it? On the minor things, we can just kind of go, yeah, well, you know, that's interesting. I don't buy that. On a big issue, like how do you get saved? We're not allowed to do that. So here's, here's how we resolve this. This is where we go with this, is you can have two honest, sincere people who have genuine difference of opinion on this particular issue and can spout, or spout, that sounds negative, can, can offer scripture in support of each one of those positions. So what do you do? Listen to what happens next. The debate rages, and so finally Peter stands up. And Peter says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So what he's saying here is, do you remember early in, in Peter's missionary journey, or Peter's work, one of the things he did was he traveled to Joppa, and he healed a person. And while he was in Joppa, a Cornelius, a Roman centurion, very Gentile, extraordinarily Gentile, but good to the Jews, called him, and he came and he preached the gospel, and he was saved. So what Peter is saying is, yeah, we can wrestle with the, the interpretation of these scriptures, but here's an event that we have to reckon with. Here's something that actually happened. I went to this this Gentile's house, and I preached the gospel, and they got saved. So don't forget what it took to get Peter to this Gentile's home. Peter is in Joppa. He's up on a roof. It's around lunchtime. He starts getting hungry, and he falls into a trance, a prophetic trance. He sees an image. And this image comes to him, and it's not just once, it happens three times. And often in prophecy, when something happens three times, it's saying, this is absolutely sure. So he sees this vision three times. He receives a prophetic vision. Well, unbeknownst to him, the day before, this man Cornelius was visited by an angel. An angel came and stood in front of him and said, send a Joppa and get this man Peter. An angel shows up. When angels show up, it's a big deal. They don't do that very often. So it took an angel to get Cornelius to send these people. So these people arrive at the front door, and they knock on the door, and the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, go with them. So now what we've got is we've got an angelic visitation, we've got a prophetic vision, and we've got the Holy Spirit speaking to get Peter just to go with these guys. So he goes there, he gets to Cornelius' house, he starts preaching the gospel. He's not even finished yet. The Holy Spirit, God himself, shows up. He descends on these people, and he manifests faith in them 
the way he did with the apostles on the day of Pentecost. They speak, speak in tongues. It's, it's a dramatic event. Peter recalls that. He shows them that. He tells them that story. Remember how I went to the Gentiles? Look at what God did in the midst of it. And the very next verse he says, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. I'm sorry, I, wanted, I meant to go one, one verse before it. Um, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. So these Gentiles, how does God respond to these Gentiles? Did he say, I'm not touching them until they come under the law? That's not what happened. He says, and God, who knows the heart, he knows the heart of these Gentiles. He knows the heart of you and I. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. Peter's interpretation of what happened was God was affirming to the Gentiles that they were included. Not to Peter, but to the Gentiles. God bore witness to them by sending them the Holy Spirit. So this is, way, this is the way that, that God authenticates what has just happened. Is He says, I sent my spirit upon them, not because of the law, but because I know their heart, and I know they have faith, and so I manifested my Holy Spirit there. This is the function of the Holy Spirit. Earlier I mentioned the signs of covenants. There's, there's signs and covenants. By the way, there's no sign in the Davidic covenant, and there's no sign in the covenant in the garden. Um, so don't get too big on covenant signs and symbols. Is there a, is there a sign of the new covenant? Um, this is one of my favorite axes to grind, so you've heard this before. Please indulge me a little bit. The sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. That's why it says here, he gave them the Holy Spirit as a witness to them. He sent his Holy Spirit to them in a way to say, your faith has saved you, and now I'm sealing you in this covenant. So this really is a covenant issue. How are they in the new covenant? Are they in the new covenant by first going into the old covenant? What Peter is saying is, no, that couldn't have happened. God sent them. He sealed them with his Holy Spirit just as he did us on the day of Pentecost. It's the same thing. They are equally as saved as we are, is what he's saying, because they have received the promise, the seal, the stamp of the Holy Spirit on them. So however you're interpreting scripture, you have to deal with this issue. Because God has shown up. God has done a thing. That's what's going to direct you one way or the other. So that's his point, is he's saying that the Holy Spirit has sealed these folks. And I have a list of New Testament scriptures that talk about the Spirit sealing, but I won't repeat them. Um, but they're there. So that's what happened is the Spirit came upon them. And, and this idea that they're sealed by the Spirit apart from law, Paul picks that up in Galatians and he repeats it. In Galatians 5, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. And then Paul asks, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of law or by faith? Paul appeals to the, the showing up of the Spirit as well. So circumcision is not this minor little thing. And you receive the Spirit by faith. You didn't receive the Spirit by works of law. So when these Judaizers come and they try to intimidate you and tempt you into falling under the law, don't buy it. You have received the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. 
He has put his he has put the stamp on you and said, I have accepted them. So Peter gives his testimony. He tells his story, and then he asks the question, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you putting God to the test? God has shown up. God has, has authenticated this. God has visited. He's rested upon these people. And what you're wanting to do is put God to the test. Not the Gentiles. This is an offense against God himself. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers or we have been able to bear. Here's the problem with law. It will crush you. You can't be good enough. You won't be good enough. It will weigh you down. It will bear a burden on your shoulders you can't handle. So he says, why are you testing God? God gave us the law, and, and the law didn't save us. So don't go there. And, and then he sums it up. Here's the issue. Here's, here's the statement. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. God makes no distinction. We are saved by grace. And that's a terrifying prospect. Have you ever thought of that? The reason that we have a tendency to go towards legalism, to want to do these things and do those things, is because then we have an external standard. We can go, well, I did this. I must be good enough. Oh, I failed to do this. This is why God's zapping me today. That's much easier. It's much more rational to understand rather than saying, I'm putting it all away. It, my works are not going to contribute to this. My only hope is I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has done it for me. I'm counting on his righteousness, and that's it. So then what happens when I have a bad day? Well, I better do some good stuff to make it up. No. What happens when you have a bad day is you turn to Jesus and you go, I messed up. I blew it again. Lord, I'm counting on you. Please take away my sin. It's a scary prospect. Especially when doubts arise, when you begin to wonder, was this real? What really happened? Where, you know, do I really believe enough? We just start drifting back into legalism. So to say that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus can be a frightening prospect because you're not in control. But here's the good news. You're not in control. That means you can't bring it down. You can't earn it. You can't measure up to it. That means you can't fail it either. That's the good news, and that, that's where the scary part kind of begins to go away is to think, oh, man, I, I screwed up yesterday bad. I don't ever want to do that again. <sighs> Lord, I'm, let me rest in you. I, I know I can still come to you. I haven't been excluded. I haven't now chased myself out. Lord, I'm coming back to you, and I'm going to find that, that fountain flowing with fresh water again, even after I put my muddy hooves in it. That's the good news. So that's Peter's message. That's... That's the council. This is how the council proceeds. What happened next then is that everybody falls silent and they listen to Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas say, yeah, you know what Peter said? Listen to what happened here. Do you know what happened when we first left Antioch and we traveled to, to Cyprus? We traveled across the, the island of Cyprus and we're preaching the gospel to everybody. And then we get to the one end of the island and we met a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. We ran into this guy, and God blinded him. This seer, this mystic seer, God blinded him. And do you know what happened out of that? Paulus, the governor, the Gentile, believed in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And they just keep telling story after story about this missionary trip, and the whole council is amazed. It, it just is way too much for them. They were like, I, 
the Holy Spirit must really be working here. He must really be up to something. And so finally, after they get done telling all these stories, James stands up. Now, James is an interesting character in the New Testament. This is not James, the brother of John, the disciple of the Lord. He was killed in chapter 11. Herod cut his head off. I think it was cut his head off. Herod killed him in chapter 11. This is a different James. Um, the theory is this is the same James that wrote the epistle of James. This James, who is now an elder in Jerusalem, was a brother of Jesus, a half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph, whereas Jesus was the son of God, but they shared a common mother in Mary. This is that James. This James, by the way, went to collect his brother because he thought he was insane. In the Gospels, he didn't know the Lord. Something happened. Paul tells us that, um, that Jesus visited James. And so maybe that's the point where James became a believer. There's different ways to read James. And, and I don't want to bias you too much, but I'm right, so I'm going to bias you. But there, there's a couple of different ways to read James. Um, one is James is, is, is um, just you know standard evangelical in the first testament or the first uh, century. Um, I think personally James kind of leaned more toward the law side. I think he kind of favored the law. And as we go through his response, I'll, I'll try to point out why. So he is probably one of the Judaizers who is thinking, you know, it'd be really good if we could do this because in Galatians it says that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles until men from James came. And so there's a way to interpret that that says, well, these men from James just came and reported there was a persecution in, his, in Jerusalem, and so um, you got to separate from the Gentiles. Or there's another way to read it that say, these guys came and said, they were the party of the circumcision and said, you can't do that. Um, two ways to read that. So that's why I'm not saying definitively he was, he was more of the Judaizer side. But listen to his response. Um, now, isn't it amazing that the apostles have spoken, Peter has told them, and then James stands up and goes, here's my judgment. To be the brother of the Lord must carry a lot of weight. Look, you guys, I grew up with Jesus. I, I know him. I've heard him preaching. Um, you know, I get it. He, he, he must have carried a lot of weight in this. So he stands up and he says, all right, this is my judgment. Um, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Simeon. Who's Simeon? Simeon is the proper Jewish way to pronounce the word Simon. So again, what, what um, James is doing here is he's being very Jewish. Now that could be because he favors that party, or it could be that he's an extremely wise negotiator and he's trying to keep both sides of the equation happy. Or it could be both, or it could be some blending of the two. But he refers to Simon not as Peter, Petros, which is a Greek name, but as Simeon, the Hebrew pronunciation of the name. Simeon has related this, how God visited the Gentiles. And then he goes back to that issue. Remember, we, we were arguing scripture for a while, and then we stepped back and we said, well, what's God doing? And now he's going to return to scripture. And so he quotes from Amos, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. So he quotes Amos. It's a very good quote when you've got Judaizers and people who are preaching uh, salvation by faith alone in the room. 
Why? Because it starts with this promise, the tent of David will be built back up. Israel is still going to be important. It's still a big nation. David is a great king. He's coming back. Isn't that wonderful? And then the second half appeases the other side. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, they will come in. So he, he offers a scripture that seems to satisfy both sides. I think it was a very wise move because when you're debating these things, if you come down too hard on one or the other, the, the issue never gets resolved. He's trying to keep the group together, and so he quotes that. The scriptures agree that Israel is still a thing and Gentiles are coming in, so that's good. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. So he renders his opinion. This is the judgment. We're not going to trouble him anymore. What he's done is he's come down on the side of Paul and Barnabas because he's not going to require them to be circumcised. But if you'll notice in the rest of that section, he doesn't mention circumcision. It doesn't come up. So he, he kind of announces what they're going to do, and then he says, here's what we're going to do. We'll write a letter to these churches. This will, this will be the, the answer, is we'll write them a letter. And so instead of recounting what he says there and repeating it, I want to come to the letter. The letter starts, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. The brothers to the brothers. He just called Gentiles brothers. That's pretty big. That's a good move. Actually, I was struck when Ron was reading this, how many times brothers comes up in this. It really seems like what Luke is reaching for is, look, we're brothers in Christ. And, and, and Adolphos doesn't mean just males. It means family. So he's saying we're all brothers and sisters together in Christ. He's repeating it in this section, which is all about division and how do you get to be saved and how do you become a Christian and that kind of stuff. And he repeats over and over again, brothers, brothers, brothers. So Luke kind of, kind of shows his hand and saying, yeah, I'm on Paul and Barnabas' side. But the letter does too. Brothers, the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Listen to where he goes. This is brilliant. He says, since we've heard that some persons have come out or gone out from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So he acknowledges, A, this has really been a problem for you guys. This has really caused a lot of dissension. He acknowledges, look, they're from us. They came out from us. But then he kind of removes a little bit of their authority. He kind of pulls the carpet out from a little bit. And he says, well, we gave them no instructions. We didn't tell them to go and do that. So immediately, he kind of takes them down a notch. We didn't tell them to do those things. They've, they've come and they've troubled you, and we're sorry about that. He says, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, we are all in agreement. So now if anybody comes up and says, look, well, I was at the council and I didn't agree. Well, we were all of one accord. What's your problem? So he's, he's, he's maintaining that unity of the church. We're all of one accord. Um, we chose men and sent them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So while he kind of diminished those Judaizers a bit by saying, hey, we didn't give them any instructions, he just elevated Barnabas and Paul. They are beloved. We're putting our blessing on them. They are our friends. And so now I think he's just kind of even that playing field a little bit. Our beloved Barnabas and Paul Men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So we're writing a letter, but letters can be forged. We're sending human beings who were here, and they'll tell you what's going on. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. 
The Holy Spirit came up. Remember earlier, the Holy Spirit was that authenticating thing which would help him interpret the scriptures. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We've seen what the Holy Spirit's been doing amongst you Gentiles. We, we recognize it. That is, if that's good enough for him, that's good enough for us. That's what they're saying, is we're going to fall in line with what the Holy Spirit is doing. To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That, he just mentioned circumcision. One of the commentators was saying that there's a big debate about the fact that circumcision doesn't come up. It comes up by exclusion. Here's, what, here's the only things that you have to do. And circumcision isn't in there. So doesn't that speak to circumcision? It says you don't have to be circumcised. Don't worry about it. So here's the things that he lists. He says, no greater burdens than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's strangled and from sexual immorality. So the first three, sacrifice to idols from blood and from what's been strangled, they're probably talking about pagan worship. Obviously, sacrifice to idols is. But the blood portion, that was, that was a requirement not from Moses. That came from Noah, where God said, don't eat anything with blood in it because the blood is the life of the animal. But the pagans would often eat with the blood. Now, the strangled part, it's not really clear. We don't, don't know exactly what's going on there. But if that was part of pagan worship, is not to slit the throat of the animal and bleed it, but to strangle the animal, what happens when you cut it up and you roast it and you eat it? It's still got the blood in it. The blood doesn't come out because they're strangled. So the idea is those first three requirements are saying, you Gentiles, stop worshiping that way. Don't go to temples. Don't, don't worship in temples. That's abhorrent. That's horrible. And then the other part is the practical and sexual immorality. Don't, don't participate in sexual immorality. This is all we're asking you. Now, in the pagan world at that time, sex was, well, let's, let me put it this way. Sex is almost bad now as it was then. It just, anything goes. Um, it was worse then because there was no laws against pedophilia and other horrible things, but it was pretty bad. And so the pagans were just wild. And so what they're saying here is, is abstain from sexual morality. It's a brilliant summary of things because it deals with worship and with their loves, with their desires. It goes to the heart of the issue. He doesn't deal simply with the doctrine and say, this is true and this is true and this is true. He appeals to their heart. He says, don't worship the way you used to worship. That was a mess. Don't do that. And in, as far as the indulgences of the heart, you, you have been... Saved by Jesus Christ, by the grace of Jesus Christ, now your life can conform to this. Watch your passions. Watch your desires. Don't indulge in sexual immorality. Keep yourself pure that way. The whole thing is predicated on the idea that you don't have to follow laws to be saved, right? He doesn't say it explicitly, but he says these are the only things you need to worry about. It starts with an, an, an unwritten authentication of the fact that you Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, period. That's how you're saved. Now, having been saved that way, how do you conduct your lives? See, one of the issues that comes up is, do we apply law to people? Do we tell them that they have to obey the law? It was what's called the material cause of the Reformation. The, 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 the issue at the heart of the Reformation that split Protestant and Catholic was, am I justified by good works? And justified means, am I right with God? Is my relationship right with God based on my good works or by faith alone? That was what it was based on. The Catholics said, if you guys preach grace alone, faith alone, you're going to have utter chaos. People are going to live like the devil. 
You got to have laws. You got to have something in place to keep them in line, or they're going to go ballistic. They're just going to go bananas. And that was the, the accusation. That was one of the, the things that the reformers were told. So, how do the reformers respond to that? Well, if you're really saved, if you've really been saved by faith alone and by grace alone, it doesn't just stop there. It affects the rest of your life. You have been, you have found yourself in Christ safe. Does that change your heart or not? Did it change the Gentiles' hearts? The Holy Spirit came upon them. It's like saying, well, you know, I'm saved and I've been infilled with the Holy Spirit, but it didn't really change me. I can do whatever I want, you know. I can still go, you know, rob, steal, lie, sexual immorality. No big deal. It's cool. I'm saved. The reformers said this, that, that's impossible. That's not what it means to be saved. The, the way to understand this is James is saying, look, you guys, you've been saved by grace through faith, and now live according to that. Your hearts have been made new. Now, now, the habits of your body, the habits of your mind are idol worship and sexual immorality. Those are just habits now. They're not part of who you are. You've been redeemed. You've been made new in the Holy Spirit. Now live in accordance with that new reality, that really who you really are now. So don't do those things. Put those away. The, the issue of not eating food sacrificed to idols when it comes to the New Testament is a little bit complicated. Paul seems to go back and forth. In Corinthians, he says, look, you know idols are nothing. So if you eat some food and it's been sacrificed an idol, don't worry about it. Don't, don't sweat. But if your brother sees you and he's really troubled by that, if that's in danger of, of, of inflaming him or tempting him to go back to idol worship or something, then don't eat. It's, it's not that big of a deal. And then later in Corinthians, he says, well, let me read it. Well, I'll, I'll read it for communion, I, I think. At any rate, he gets later and he says, look, there's nothing in an idol. Don't worry about it. But don't, don't eat it. So it's a complicated issue. I think the, the real heart of the matter is when it comes to the New Testament, we don't get law. Do you notice that nowhere in the New Testament do we have a book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus kind of thing? We don't get law. What we get is wisdom. Is it wise to eat meat that may have been sacrificed to an idol? Don't worry about it. It's not going to send you to hell. There's nothing in an idol. It's a piece of wood. No big deal. But if it offends your brother, if it troubles someone, then use your wisdom and say, is it better for this brother of mine that I not eat? Or is it better that I do eat? That's why you get kind of hazy instructions sometimes, because it's not about law. It's not about law. We have a tendency to want to head back to law. We like law. Law is easy. I can do this. Here's the rules. Here's the box. So this was a problem in the first century. It was a problem at the Reformation. It's kind of a problem today. Although each step along the way in church history, we've got a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more careful with it. So, for example, I know some evangelical believers, and by evangelical, I mean they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in, in uh, the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe that you must have personal faith to be saved. They believe in an eternal afterlife, either in heaven or in hell. All of those kind of standard orthodox evangelical beliefs, and yet one of them practices Sabbath observance. Saturday sundown to, uh, to Sunday sun up, they don't work. They don't cook. They do the cooking beforehand. They do all of that. There's a, there's a, an allure to observing this. And, and when asked why, they said, well, because it, it makes me feel closer to God. It, it seems like it's something that God instituted. It's something that might be good. 
It's that draw to the law to think that this somehow is, is better. Now, they are not, they're sophisticated enough to, they would say, no, 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 it has nothing to do with salvation and I would never push it on anybody else, but I feel closer to God in it. I know another evangelical believer who practices um, kosher law, kosher food laws. No shellfish, no pork, none of the good stuff. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. Um, and, and if there's red juice coming out of a steak, they won't eat it because they think it's blood. It's not blood. It's just red juice. But I mean, there's this draw, there's this lure that kind of pulls you into wanting to have law. And, and that's inside the church. Outside the church, there's a draw towards law as well. I told you a while ago about a cult that showed up at my front door. One of the things that we eventually got to in the discussion is the guy said, there is a blessing for Christians who practice Passover. He was claiming that if you celebrate Passover, as it's described in the, in the Bible, that there is a blessing for you in that. Uh, it's really hard to not go and, and undo that, but that's what he said. So ask me how I told, what I answered him later. There's another group I've heard of. This is outside the church, heterodoxical, uh, errant views, called the Black, East, uh, or Black Hebrew Israelites. It was a group that started in the 1960s. They claimed to be the one of the lost tribes of Israel, uh, emigrated to Israel. Israel didn't grant them citizenship, but didn't kick them out. And eventually they said, well, um, you're not Jews, only blacks are Jews. And so they have this whole big thing. One of the, I think we've run into at least two of them on the college campus when we were out praying. Um, I've had discussions with two people. I'm pretty sure that they were uh, black Hebrew Israelites. And the one guy said, you know, the world would just be so much better if we just follow God's law. And all I could think was, yeah, but we don't. And then what? So there is this draw towards law. We want to follow law. So when, when um, James tells them, here's the things you must do is watch how you worship and watch how you love. He doesn't give them law. He gives them heart rules. And so what they do is they take this letter and they give it to Barnabas and Paul and they send Silas and Judas and they go off and they take it back to the church in Antioch and they deliver it to the church in Antioch. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They had been so troubled by these Judaizers saying, you got to fall under law, you got to obey, you got to do this, that, and the other, that when this letter shows up, it is just a huge encouragement. We don't have to replicate Judaism here. We don't replicate paganism either. The, the funny thing is the New Testament talks about three different people. The Jews, you who used to be Gentiles, used to be Gentiles. You're no longer Gentiles. You used to be in the church. So what this letter does is it calls people to live like the church, trusting only in the righteousness of Christ and then living in accordance with that. So it's not a free-for-all. It's not just whatever I feel like doing on, on any given day. So, um, fancy word of the day, denouement. Looks like denouement, uh, uh, denouement. But a denouement is kind of like after a story's been told, it's the last little bit to kind of sum up all the loose ends. So the way that the, uh, this story ends, they went off, they went down to Antioch, having gathered together the congregation, and they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were, with them as, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So the people who deliver it came from Jerusalem, came from Judea, are prophets, and they encouraged them. And the, the joy of the saints is just increased. 
And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to, who, to, to those whom had sent them. So the church receives them, rejoices with them, blesses with blesses them, prays for them. They probably gave them money and traveling aid, and then they sent them off. You guys go back home. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, and many others also. So that's how the story wraps up. The issue at the beginning was, how are you saved? The issue at the end is joy. It is a delight to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus alone. You don't have to worry. You don't have to look for other answers. Am I doing enough? Am I not doing enough? You're not measured by how deep or strong your faith is. Our faith comes and goes. It waxes and wanes. It's strong some days. It's weak other days. All that God says is, trust me. And, and the blessing is he sent his Holy Spirit on you to seal you, to say, I put my stamp on you. You're mine. I've given you my Holy Spirit. Walk in the power of that. Live in accordance with the power of that. Don't worry about it. You're mine, and you will be saved. So what's required? What is required here? The application for this sermon is be wary of your own heart. You will tend toward law really easily if you take your eye off the ball. It's easy to think, if I do this, if I do that, if I don't do this, if I don't do that. If you, the, the, big, the big example, it, it, probably because it always happens to me. I'm sure you guys are more mature than that. You don't have this problem. I have a bad day, and I think, what did I do wrong? God must be zapping me. I must have done something wrong. What did Jesus do wrong? The correct answer is absolutely nothing. He was perfect. Did he have a bad day? He was killed, executed on a cross. That didn't mean God hated him. It meant God allowed hardship to come into to, to Jesus' life in order to accomplish a great purpose. And so when you have a bad day, don't tend toward law and wonder what you did. I didn't do Bible study this morning. My mind drifted when I was reading Leviticus, and, I don't, and God's zapping me now. Fight that with tooth and nail. Read the letter from the Council of Jerusalem. What you're saved by is God's grace, period. Use that to fight against the temptation to law. This is really important because what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts is we're going to continue missionary journeys. We're going to go out and mix with a lot more Gentiles. And it's going to get messy, and there's going to be people with weird beliefs and all kinds of stuff. And so this is really important for Luke to push this forward for us, to drop it dead center of his book so that as we progress, we can go, yeah, those Gentiles are really saved. Yeah, they're not perfect, but they're really saved. They have problems, but they're really saved because they're not saved by law. They're saved by grace alone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this letter. Um, I thank you for the way that uh, Luke has presented it to us. He's, he's put it forward as a central point of his argument and, in, and right in the dead center of his book and has given great detail in it, slowed the narrative down and really focused us in on that. And Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends, would you sink into us the truth that we are not saved by law, that the burden that was placed on the shoulders of Israel was too much for them to bear, but Lord, you didn't leave it there. You did something about it. Jesus took that, that yoke. He took that burden upon himself and let it crush him, brought him to death on a cross so that he might rise again and show newness of life 
freeing us from the sin that, that the only thing that law can do is, is exacerbate sin, make it bigger and worse. So, Lord, I pray that you would remind us regularly that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, and that's it. Easy to say. Lord, help us to walk it out. Help us to live that way and to live in accordance with the grace that you've shown us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.